Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the spring of 1983, a massive snowmelt sent runoff racing down the Colorado River toward the Glen Canyon Dam. Worried federal officials desperately scrambled to avoid a worst-case scenario, one of the most dramatic dam failures in history. In the midst of this crisis, a trio of river guides secretly launched a small hand-built wooden boat, a dory named the Emerald Mile, into the Colorado just below the dam's base. Their goal? To catapult the Emerald Mile to legend as the fastest boat ever propelled through the heart of the Grand Canyon. In addition to chronicling the trials of the three river guides, the story also follows a team of beleaguered engineers who were tasked with saving the Grand Canyon Dam. My conversation today is with the author Kevin Fedarko, author of the new book, The Emerald Mile. We're talking about John Wesley Powell, the history of the canyon and the river as well, following the news. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Paul Brown. Prosecutors in Sanford, Florida are asking that George Zimmerman, charged with second-degree murder in the shooting death of Trayvon Martin, also face lesser charges when the case goes to the jury. NPR's Greg Allen reports from Sanford that one of those charges would be a third-degree murder charge, death caused by child abuse. Trayvon Martin was 17 years old when he fought with George Zimmerman, a fight that ended when Zimmerman shot and killed the teenager. In court today, Assistant State Attorney Richard Manti asked Judge Deborah Nelson to instruct the jury that along with second-degree murder and manslaughter, it should also consider a third-degree murder charge. Manti argues that state law allows for that charge when death or injury comes as a result of child abuse. Zimmerman's lawyer Donald West objected, reacting strongly, calling the additional charge outrageous and a trick by prosecutors. Judge Nelson says she'll rule on it before the jury convenes this afternoon. Greg Allen, NPR News, Sanford, Florida. Stock prices are in record high territory today. The Dow up 136 at 15,438 at last check. This is after Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke's remarks that the Fed will continue supporting economic growth with its monetary policies. Stocks are also up on a retail sales report out this morning showing consumers increasing their spending. Manufacturing appears to be bouncing back too, according to economist Don Norman of the manufacturer's trade group Maypie. Things are pretty uh, languid there in late winter and early spring. But there have been some signs of life, and uh, I think that's reflected in the current Maypie business outlook. The outlook shows slightly accelerating expansion, but the expansion is not showing up in employment. Manufacturing job numbers have decreased slightly this spring. Amid the stronger economy and rising home values, fewer homeowners are facing foreclosure in the U.S. NPR's Dave Mattingly reports those numbers down sharply. Realty Track says the number of homes entering the foreclosure process dropped 21 percent last month. It fell to the lowest level in seven and a half years. Foreclosure activity overall was down 14 percent, and compared to June of last year, it was off by more than a third. Realty Track's Darren Bloomquist says despite the improvements, Florida is still struggling. Florida is really at the top just because the severity of the housing crisis there was much more than many of those other states, so there's just a larger volume of distressed properties to deal with. Nevada and Illinois rank two and three for states still wrestling with foreclosures. Dave Mattingly, NPR News, Washington. Investigators looking into Saturday's San Francisco jetliner crash are now focusing on automation, controls, and communication. And so are some lawmakers who say that automation has made air traffic, uh, air travel safer in general, but adds pilots need better training. From Washington, this is NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from Living Essentials, distributor of five-hour energy with flavors including grape, berry, and orange, in stores and at fivehourenergy.com. With Utah News this hour, I'm Carrie Bringhurst. Boy Scout officials say the 14-year-old boy from Cedar Hills who died at a camp in central Utah was run over by a trailer. Boy Scout officials say Bruce Rocky Rydelhoover was out picking up trash around the camp Tuesday night when he slipped and fell underneath the tires of a trailer being pulled by a truck. The main road in Ogden Canyon is now reopened after crews have cleared away the debris from a landslide that caused a broken water main. Utah Public Radio's Tavin Stuckey spoke with Utah Department of Transportation official Vic Saunders about the slide. It rushed across the highway. It knocked off safety barriers that protect the roadway from the cars falling into the Ogden River, and it knocked those barriers off into the river. Saunders says the pipe that broke was about to be replaced in a project already underway for the past five months. This is the pipeline that that project is replacing. That work was just recently completed, and they are getting ready to change over the water from the old line to the new line. It's kind of interesting that how that failure occurred, but that work is done on the new pipeline, and this line that failed will soon go out of use totally. Saunders says he is not aware of any injuries that occurred from the incident. For Utah Public Radio, I'm Tavin Stuckey. Wildlife smoke is helping to raise soot and ozone levels. Soot and ozone levels around Utah. Ozone levels have just risen above the safe threshold in Salt Lake and Davis counties. Ozone is a lung irritant that can also damage crops and trees. Doctors say it can provoke heart attacks or stroke for people with medical problems. The forecast today is calling for increased temperatures, reaching near 89 degrees for a high today in Logan, 100 in Hanksville. I'm Carrie Bringhurst. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Cole Porter's Anything Goes with seven other productions, June through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the spring of 1983, a massive snowmelt sent runoff racing down the Colorado River toward the Glen Canyon Dam. Worried federal officials desperately scrambled to avoid a worst-case scenario, one of the most dramatic dam failures in history. In the midst of this crisis, a trio of river guides secretly launched a small hand-built wooden boat, a dory named the Emerald Mile, into the Colorado just below the dam's base. Their goal? to catapult the Emerald Mile into legend as the fastest boat ever propelled through the heart of the Grand Canyon. And in addition to chronicling the trials of three river guides, a new book by Kevin Fedarko, The Emerald Mile, also follows a team of beleaguered engineers who were tasked with saving the Glen Canyon Dam. In essence, this is an adventure tale that lays out the history of the river and the canyon while opening a window into the violent and sublime world of whitewater and wooden boats on the Colorado River. Kevin Fedarko joins me for the hour. Welcome to the program. Do we have uh, Mr. Fedarko with us? Uh, It sounds like we need to uh, amend our connection. I'll just tell you that Kevin Fedarko lives in northern New Mexico and uh, works as a part-time river guide, or has worked there in the Grand Canyon National Park. Uh, his works, his uh, written works have appeared for Outside, Esquire, National Geographic, Adventure, and other publications. He's coming to Salt Lake City. He'll be at the King's English Bookshop on July 31st, 7 p.m., for uh, reading and signing. That event jointly sponsored by the King's English and the Wallace Stegner Center at University of Utah. Do we have Mr. Fedarka with us now? 
Good morning, Tom. Oh, How good morning. You? Good morning. Apologize for uh, a little uh, bit of confusion there. Uh, so a very interesting book, Pulse Pounding, and some very interesting history as well. Uh, as I understand it, you you learned about this, this uh, legendary, now legendary trip, fastest trip through the uh, Grand Canyon while you were running river. That's right. Um, that's where I heard, first heard about this story in the summer of uh, 2003. I uh, apprenticed myself to uh, one of the commercial river outfitters that conducts uh, expeditions down the Colorado through the Grand Canyon. That was the first of what would be five summers that I spent working uh, as a baggage boatman in the canyon. And, you know, one of the things that you quickly come to learn um, when you become part of the subculture of river guiding and whitewater running uh, inside the canyon is that, you know, there's kind of a a fabric of um, oral history that is um, woven together by the uh, guides who, who run the trips through the canyon. And um, those guides are um, jacks of all trades. Um, they have multiple skill sets that range from uh, being able to row through uh, some extremely large and challenging whitewater to cooking and setting up camp and breaking down camp and fixing things that break. But really what they do best, I think, is um, they sit around, uh, particularly at night, and they tell stories to their passengers about the river, about the canyon, um, about the people who have formed the history of that place. And uh, one, of the, one of the most popular stories that's told, a story that um, is so deeply wo- woven into that fabric that it's almost impossible uh, to take a river trip down the canyon and not hear the story, is, is the tale of the, um, the events that descended on that place during the summer of 1983. So, yeah, that's how I first heard about it. You write, I think it's in your acknowledgments somewhere, you, you list a lot of the books that you referred to. And, of course, your book is now added to uh, the history of the uh, the river and, and the canyon. But at one point you say that if you really want to know, you've got to, you've got to go there. You do. Um, the Grand Canyon is probably the most iconic landscape feature in North America. Um, it's a place that's known to almost everyone. It's impossible to even show a picture of the Grand Canyon to very young school children and not have them recognize it. And an enormous number of us go there each year. 4.5 million of us travel to the South Rim um, to park in the parking lot and gaze into that abyss from the top. But the thing about it is, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to look into it. Um, it's a, um, it offers a kind of display of colors and a pageantry of light and rock that's really like nothing else uh, on the surface of the planet. But there is, beneath those rims, a kind of a hidden world um, that's so deep inside, more than a mile beneath the rims themselves, that you can only see tiny, tiny segments of it from the surface. And um, that world, in addition to being hidden, is incredibly vibrant and, um, I think, probably the most direct and visceral way of not only experiencing the canyon, but coming to sort of understand uh, both its beauty and its power. And, you know, the key that unlocks all of that is the Colorado River, um, the agent that carved the canyon in the first place, um, but which during the course of its journey through the Grand Canyon, 
which is a 277-mile journey that starts at a place called Lee's Ferry, uh, up at the head of the canyon in northern Arizona, and concludes at um, a geologic formation known as the Grand Wash Cliffs, which define the uh, threshold between the end of the Grand Canyon and the entryway to Lake Mead. Um, and during the course of that journey, um, the river has created a kind of almost Edenic, riparian paradise um, inside a world of sun-blasted rock um, that is uh, almost devoid, portions of it, particularly on the cliffs, are almost devoid of uh, vegetation and life. Uh, you have this incredibly vibrant uh, strip of, of, of green um, that uh, winds sinuously through the bottom of the canyon and is filled with the sound of moving water, um, animals and birds that are moving through it. And it's just a very, very unique place. And uh, uh, it also affords the opportunity to, to, to realize that the, um, you know, what's even more powerful than looking down into the canyon from above is staring up at it from below. Mm. I wonder if you could uh, set the scene of late June of 1983. It's an El Nino year, a huge snow melt and, and runoff. And in fact, Bureau of Reclamation is worried about the Glen Canyon Dam. And there's, there's, there's already been some, uh, at least one fatality, right? And, and the, the river has been closed. Maybe you could set the scene uh, beyond that as uh, late June when, when these three people put this, uh, this dory into the water. Well, it was an extraordinary um, spring that year, 1983. Meteorologists will tell you that it was one of the most remarkable years we've ever seen. Thanks to a series of meteorological anomalies that were triggered uh, several months earlier on the far end of the Pacific Ocean, um, the the western coast of the United States and uh, the southern Rockies were inundated by a series of superstorms, which succeeded in building the snowpack, in the case of the California Sierra, up to record proportions. And uh, in the case of the Southern Rockies, the snowpack wasn't um, the highest that we've ever seen, but what made it really unique and unusual was that um, the temperatures remained very, very cold until late in the spring. Um, And then right around May 28th, Uh, The temperatures shot into the high 80s, and all of that snow came out of the southern Rockies in one vast, wet rush. Um, There was so much water coming down, actually. I mean, many of your listeners, um, I'm assuming, are in Salt Lake City, and some of them will remember that uh, in May of that year, there was so much flood water coming out of the canyons uh, into the Salt Lake Valley that the... uh, the water actually had to be diverted um, down a series of streets in the middle of Salt Lake City. And Salt Lake was lined with, uh, those streets were lined with sandbags, more than a million sandbags. And Salt Lake was kind of turned into a, uh, a desert version of Venice with um, commuters walking across wooden footbridges to get to work and kayakers paddling through the current. Um, that water was not headed into the Colorado River system, but uh, the rest of the runoff uh, that was coming off of the Southern Rockies, uh, the, the larger portion of it was. And um, all of that water, when it reached um, Lake Powell, uh, the head of Lake Powell, the reservoir that backs up behind the Glen Canyon Dam, um, 
the water came down so fast that it really took the men who were in charge of managing uh, the Glen Canyon Dam, employees of the Bureau of Reclamation, almost completely by surprise. And here there's another interesting Salt Lake City connection because um, there was a team of weather forecasters in Salt Lake City that year. Um, Salt Lake City hosts one of several um, river forecast centers, and um, the Colorado River Basin Forecast Center is located just out near the airport in Salt Lake City. And uh, I, during the course of my research, I spoke to a number of um, a number of the men who uh, worked in that office during that year, and they explained to me that the system they have, when compared to what they have today, was relatively primitive. And um, one of the handicaps that they faced was that they did not have enough snow telemetry gauges and um, precipitation devices placed in the upper Colorado River Basin in order to enable them to accurately predict and model the runoff that year, which is really the reason why the, uh, the men at the Glen Canyon Dam were unable to um, anticipate fully uh, how much water was headed toward them. And in a nutshell, um, when they finally realized this, which was uh, during the first week in June, the surface of Lake Powell was clawing its way up the side of the Glen Canyon Dam at a rate almost twice as fast as they were capable of releasing water through the dam itself. Mm. And um, you can kind of imagine what it must have felt like at that time to be, to be sitting in the control room at the base of the Glen Canyon Dam and realizing that you had a rising lake, the, uh, the tools that were available to you to, uh, to stem that onrush were very limited, and then um, what really took a, a crisis and catapulted it into the category of a full-blown emergency was the fact that um, when they opened up their spillway tunnels on either side of the dam, which was basically the Glen Canyon Dam's insurance policy, um, massive 40-foot diameter tunnels that are designed to, um, to shunt water around the dam, um, a series of malfunctions occurred deep inside the tunnels, um, and the lining, the concrete lining of those tunnels began dismantling as a result of turbulence deep inside the tunnels. Hmm. And uh, so this was an extraordinary year. It was a crisis that in many ways had no precedent in the history of American hydroelectric engineering. And the team of officials who were tasked with the responsibility of saving the dam um, we're primarily focused on how to get water through and around the dam and prevent the spillway gates and ultimately the parapet of the dam itself from being overtopped. But what they did in the process was they sent as much water as they possibly could, fire hosing into uh, the canyon directly below the dam. And to give you an idea of how much water they were sending into the canyon that summer, uh, during the previous 20 years, um, the flow of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon rarely varied between 16,000 cubic feet per second and 30,000 cubic feet per second. And um, starting in late June of 1983, the engineers in charge of the Glen Canyon Dam began sending 93,000 cubic feet per second of water uh, into, the Glen, in, into the Grand Canyon. So those were the conditions that really laid down um, the foundation for what is the the uh, the core narrative, the story at the center of this book, uh, the story of this speed run that was then conducted uh, by a group of river guides. Uh, so what would have happened uh, if the dam had failed? 
That's a great question, and it's a question that the answer to which really um, in 1983 would have depended upon who you asked. Um, there were several dozen commercial and private river trips inside the Grand Canyon uh, when this artificial flood was triggered by the releases coming out of the dam. And uh, this was during an era before cell phone technology and social media. Um, the boatmen who were uh, responsible for getting those boats down the river had almost no access to information. And there was a lot of wild speculation about what was happening far upstream. And the fear was that the dam um, might have or might um, be in the process of failing catastrophically and collapsing. Um, had that occurred, uh, the events would have been rather apocalyptic. The Bureau of Reclamation has actually conducted a study of what might have happened um, if the Glen Canyon Dam had failed. And um, the, uh, the wall of water that would have rushed through the Grand Canyon uh, in places would have been five or 600 feet high um, uh, before it finally leveled out across the surface of Lake Mead. And it would have taken out every piece of infrastructure inside the Grand Canyon. Now, if you had asked that question, however, of the engineers who were in charge of the dam and who were really the people who best understood that structure, they would have kind of scoffed. Um, the dam itself was never in any danger of collapsing or cracking or failing catastrophically. There was a possibility, however, a remote possibility that the surface of the reservoir, Lake Powell, might rise fast enough to overtop the parapet of the dam. And had that occurred, you would have had a waterfall in excess of 500 feet high plunging over the parapet of the dam and um, uh, hammering down on and ultimately destroying the power plant at the base of the dam. And in the worst-case scenario, uh, which it's important to emphasize was the um, the least likely scenario of all, but there was a remote possibility, theoretically, that um, the, um, the water inside of these two spillway tunnels, keep in mind these are two giant tunnels that are running through the cliffs of Navajo sandstone on either side of the dam, on the west and the east sides of the dam. And um, as a result of the turbulence that I talked about earlier, the water inside those tunnels was excavating, tearing out the concrete lining inside the tunnels. And it was when it, when it penetrated through the concrete lining, it then began excavating the sandstone uh, behind the concrete. And there was a remote possibility that perhaps um, that excavation process might establish a connection, a hydrostatic connection, if you will, between the bottom of Lake Powell and one or both spillway tunnels. And had that occurred, you would have had something called an uncontrolled release, which is, in essence, um, the uh, entire contents of Lake Powell, some 9 trillion gallons of water uh, evacuating around the dam. And so the dam itself may not have failed, um, but the lake may have done an end run around the dam and thereby rushed into the canyon and uh, made its way uh, down the Colorado River, uh, taking out probably almost every single dam 
uh, and river diversion structure, with the exception of Hoover Dam, uh, between northern Arizona and the Sea of Cortez. Extraordinary. Um, and uh, this, of course, provided an opportunity for some intrepid uh, river runners, some would say reckless. <laughs> we'll get into uh, telling their story, and I'll have you tell me about their captain, uh, Kenton Grua, and the uh, the Emerald Mile, which is a wooden dory, and, and why they were doing this in, in an age where you could have uh, you know rubber rafts and such. Um, and as you describe it, this was a gesture of poetry and defiance. We'll talk a bit about that following a brief break. We're talking with Kevin Fedarko. He's author of the new book, The Emerald Mile, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon. And uh, you're welcome to join us. We'd love to hear your river running uh, story. And uh, tell us why. Why you get on the river. What's the attraction for you? We'll uh, ask what the attraction was for these uh, river runners in this extraordinary time, 1983, late spring. The number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Also, a rem- reminder that uh, we are beginning uh, today and tomorrow and running for a year, Utah StoryCorps. These are stories recorded in St. George when the StoryCorps booth was in St. George. You heard uh, Extraordinary Story this morning on uh, Morning Edition. We'll hear some tomorrow in Access Utah and in the afternoon on All Things Considered. Uh, so back after break. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll hear the sensual sounds of bossa nova and samba, both fused with electronica and neo-soul in today's club culture and in its more classical, traditional sound. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for the best of Brazil, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Logan Regional Hospital, hosting the annual Cash Grand Fondo and Outdoor Expo, including cycling, food, and entertainment, July 12th and 13th. Information available at cashgrandfondo.com. Support also comes from Intermountain Medical Group, announcing the new North Cache Valley Clinic, offering Instacare and physical therapy. Public open house is July 20th from 10 to 2 on Highway 91 in Hyde Park. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the spring of 1983, a massive snowmelt sent runoff racing down the Colorado River toward the Glen Canyon Dam. Worried federal officials desperately scrambled to avoid a worst-case scenario, the most dramatic dam failures in uh, history, and we talked about that in the first segment of the program. In the midst of that crisis, a trio of river guides secretly launched a small hand-built wooden boat, a dory named Emerald Mile into the Colorado River just below the dam's base, and their goal was to catapult the Emerald Mile into legend as the fastest boat ever propelled through the heart of the Grand Canyon. Kevin Fedarko writes about this legendary trip in the Emerald Mile, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon. Kevin Fedarko will be coming to the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City for a reading and signing, and that is July 31st at 7 p.m. at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. That event jointly sponsored by King's English and Wallace Stegner Center at University of Utah. You're welcome to join the conversation. We'd love to hear about your river running adventures and especially why. I'm curious about why people get on the river. 
uh, I'm sure there's adventure and uh, and appreciation of nature. There might be other reasons. We'll hear about the reasons for these three men who uh, launched the Emerald Mile. The number is 1-800-826-1495. And you can also join us at upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Kevin Fedarko is with us uh, for uh, the hour. So it's uh, this, uh, you describe him as a wild-haired veteran of the river, Kenton Grua, his two companions. They they put this wooden dory into the water about 11 p.m. on the night of uh, June 25th, 1983. And uh, you describe this, uh, Kevin Fedarko, as a gesture of poetry and defiance. Why why are they doing this? Well, um, the answer to the defiance part of the question... um, to sort of fully appreciate it, you need to you need to sort of take a step back and think a little bit about what uh, had happened to the Colorado River. So prior to the 1930s, the Colorado was really the wildest and least controlled river um, in the Southwest. Um, it was a river that was saturated with silt. Um, it was an exceptionally mercurial river, which is to say that because it was driven primarily by snowmelt. You know, it could um, it could flow at almost a trickle for much of the year, and then, um, you know, literally without warning, in the space of several days, it could uh, leap from 3,000 cubic feet per second to 30,000 cubic feet per second, and then to 100,000 CFS in the space of 72 hours or just a couple of days. And so, the Colorado River was synonymous with um, extremely violent, uncontrollable floods particularly uh, within the lower basin, an area that now comprises one of the um, richest agricultural breadbaskets that we have in the country, uh, the Imperial Valley. And so um, this was a river that was, um, um, that was viewed largely as a natural menace. Until the 1930s when um, the United States Bureau of Reclamation uh, began constructing what ultimately would become a series of very impressive hydroelectric dams up and down the entire length of that river, starting with Hoover Dam, uh, which many people believe to have been the greatest dam ever built. And uh, by the 1970s, the Colorado had been transformed from um, the wildest river in the West to the most controlled river in the West. Um, it was a river that uh, was straightjacketed and uh, whose energy and kinetics were harnessed and bottled and used to serve the, uh, the needs of human beings uh, in the form of light and power and heat and other forms of energy in cities across the Southwest. Now, there's a community of, um, of boatmen who live at the bottom of the Grand Canyon um, who... Um, were inspired to be there in the first place and uh, are energized by tales of what that river was like um, before it was controlled by the dams and um, who are intoxicated by the, um, the magic of uh, whitewater uh, and for whom free-flowing rivers serve as a larger metaphor um, for much of what is um, fulfilling and inspiring about life itself. Now, this sounds a bit hokey, but uh, if you spend much time on a river like the Colorado, particularly in a world like the bottom of the Grand Canyon where you're cut off from everything else, um, it actually makes quite a bit of sense. 
And so this is kind of the setup for 1983, because if you sort of take all of that into account, then you kind of understand and can appreciate the fact that when the uh, runoff of 1983 came rushing down out of the mountains and took the Bureau of Reclamation by surprise and resulted in a series of decisions that created an artificial flood inside the canyon, uh, a flood whose dimensions had not been witnessed in um, more than a quarter century, you you realize that, um, that that moment presented a rather unique opportunity in the minds of the uh, boatmen who live and work at the bottom of the canyon. Um, because uh, for the span of a few weeks, it would be possible to uh, witness and merge with and participate in a, a river that uh, bore a um, visceral resemblance to the ancestral Colorado River, a majestic and wild and free-flowing and also um, fearsome and savagely violent river that was no longer under human control. And this was the idea um, that, was, that was so electrifying, um, in particular for one man, a... Um, a boatman by the name of Kenton Grua, who um, was kind of both larger than life and unusually small in stature. Um, Kenton Grua grew up in Salt Lake City until his parents moved to uh, Vernal in, um, uh, when he was 12 years old. And by the time he was 19, he had made his way down the Colorado and was inside the Grand Canyon working first as a motorboat river guide. And then uh, Two years after that, he transferred it over to the only company on the Colorado inside the Grand Canyon that at the time was uh, conducting commercial river expeditions exclusively in a particular type of boat, a very small wooden boat known as a dory. And um, dories are, without question, the most graceful and beautiful of all the boats that ply the river at the bottom of the canyon. And um, they also require the greatest amount of dexterity and skill to handle, particularly inside the giant hydraulics of the biggest rapids, uh, because they are exceptionally delicate and they're also very, very tippy. And so Kenton Grove was obsessed with dories. Um, he worked for this company that specialized in rowing these boats through the river. And um, when the, uh, as the water began to rise in uh, June of 1983, he, he began to realize that... Um, if, if he took his dory, he had a little dory by the name of the Emerald Mile, and if he placed that dory into the head of the river below the, the Glen Canyon Dam, at the crest of this surge that was coming out of the dam, it might be possible to use that flood as a kind of hydraulic slingshot, if you will, that would propel himself and two of his friends and the boat all the way through the canyon, that's 277 miles from Lee's Ferry to the Grand Wash Cliffs, um, and hurdle this little dory and these three men, not only down the length of the canyon, but into the history books as the fastest boat ever to traverse the length of the Grand Canyon. And his hope was that not only would they break the Grand Canyon speed record, but they would smash it so decisively by virtue of undertaking this enterprise under such unusual conditions, that the bar would be set so high that um, it might never again be broken. And therefore, the achievement of the Emerald Mile would not simply be one in a long list of speed records, but um, the speed record that might last for all time. 
that was the uh, seductive idea that um, propelled this venture and um, sent these three men on the night of June 25th, an hour before midnight, hurtling into the, into the darkness at the head of the canyon. Now, with the conditions, with the conditions the way they were, uh, they might easily have died, might they? That was a very distinct possibility, particularly because, unbeknownst to these three men, um, they put this boat, by the way, I failed to mention that they put this boat onto the river illegally. They had applied for a permit from the National Park Service and once were summarily denied, um, primarily because there were uh, there was a whole host of um, of river expeditions inside the canyon who were um, attempting with various degrees of success to deal with this enormous water that was fire hosing through the canyon. Many of the rapids as a result of the high water actually washed out, but at a few very significant choke points, things went completely haywire, um, particularly at a very savage rapid known as Crystal, which is 98 miles downstream from Lee's Ferry. And um, unbeknownst to Kent Grua and his two companions, 12 hours prior to their launch, the um, uh, Crystal had begun uh, flipping giant 37-foot motor rigs. These are the largest boats inside the Grand Canyon. And Crystal had begun flipping these boats upside down and literally tearing them to pieces. Uh, in one case, um, the worst case of all, a 37-foot uh, motor rig had been torn to pieces. Uh, some 20 people had been flung into the river and washed up to four miles downstream. And one of these one of these people, a gentleman named William Wirt, who was a commercial passenger from Colorado, had died. And so um, uh, there was a very distinct possibility that something similar might happen to Grua and his two companions, particularly because, unlike any other expedition on the time uh, on the river at the time, these men were not only rowing during the day, but they were also rowing at night. The only way to really establish a speed record was to row continuously. And so when they launched, they brought with them a car battery, a set of cables that connected that battery to a powerful spotlight known as a Q-beam. And their intention was for each man to row for about 20 minutes, as hard as he possibly could until he was about to drop from exhaustion, at which point he would then turn the oars over to his companion. And in this way, these three men would rotate around the decks of this little dory, all night long and all day long, rowing continuously um, along both the calm stretches of the river and directly through all of the big rapids without stopping to scout a single one of them uh, until they reached the end of the canyon and hopefully broke the speed record. Hmm. Um, and so they, uh, and I think at a certain point you got park rangers looking for you, right? They did. Um, the, the Park Service was well aware of the fact that they were on the river. Um, they had uh, um, been tipped off um, uh, just a few hours after Grua and his companions launched. And um, there was actually a park ranger who now lives in Salt Lake City, a gentleman by the name of John Thomas. Um, and John Thomas's assignment on June 26th was uh, he was dropped into the canyon by helicopter and stationed alongside Crystal Rapid, um, which was the place where most of the big accidents and the one fatality had occurred the day before. And uh, John Thomas's responsibility that day was to uh, put a halt to every expedition coming down the river and force all commercial passengers to get out of their boats and walk around Crystal. Um, it was also his duty to 
explain to the boatmen who were about to navigate that rapid um, just how dangerous it was and um, to to lay out for them a series of moves that would hopefully result in them uh, entering the only safety channel available to skirting around which was what was known as a, a, an explosion wave. Um, this is a hydraulic jump at the center of the rapid that was 30 feet from trough to crest. Those are dimensions that are normally found only in the open ocean. And um, so the process of stopping and talking to John Thomas and allowing your passengers to walk around the rapid was a mandatory part of the program that day. And um, uh, Kenton Grua and his two companions not only were completely unaware of what was going on at Crystal, but had they known, they probably would have ignored that requirement anyhow. And uh, they rode straight past. John Thomas witnessed the run, um, was forced to submit a report to his superiors on the South Rim, and that set in motion a chain of events that ultimately resulted in Grua being hauled into federal court uh, after the run was over on the South Rim of the canyon. So a big part of the story is the National Park Service and their tracking and monitoring of this illegal speed run and their feelings about it. Yeah, that was an interesting part of the, the story that the the park superintendent was livid and he wanted to make an example. And that's uh, near the end of your book, The, the Trial. It actually goes to trial. Uh, we'll take a brief break here. And uh, when we come back, we'll have more of this uh, fascinating story. The Emerald Mile is the uh, name of the book, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon. Three river runners took advantage of extraordinary circumstances in 1983, huge runoff, and were able to experience the Colorado River, 277 miles of it through the Grand Canyon, uh, maybe something like uh, the, the way the river was before it uh, became dammed and, and such. I mean, that was part of their, part of their goal. We're uh, talking with Kevin Fedarko, who will be in Salt Lake City for an appearance with the King's English Bookshop. That is July 31st at 7 p.m. at King's English. That's jointly sponsored with the Wallace Stegner Center at the University of Utah. By the way, we'll have the our Utah StoryCorps segment. You heard uh, that first this morning on uh, the Morning Edition. We'll have uh, that again at the end of this program and uh, tomorrow during All Things Considered and for the rest of the year. Great stories recorded by you at our St. George StoryCorps booth. Uh, Utah StoryCorps f- uh, starting today and for the uh, next year. Hope you'll join us for those stories. More with uh, Kevin Fedarko following the break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Skin cancer is the most common type of cancer in the United States. The harmful ultraviolet rays from both the sun and indoor tanning sun lamps can cause many other complications besides skin cancer, such as eye problems, a weakened immune system, age spots, wrinkles, and leathery skin. Wear clothing that will protect your skin from the harmful UV rays such as long sleeve shirts and pants. Stay out of the sun if possible between the peak burning hours, which are between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Find some shade or make your own with a broad-brimmed hat. Use extra caution when at higher altitudes, as there is less atmosphere to absorb UV radiation. And lastly, make sure to apply broad-spectrum sunscreen of at least 15 SPF to cover all exposed skin. By following these simple steps, you can still enjoy your time in the sun and protect yourself from overexposure. This is Nicole Jackson for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Kevin Fedarko. The Emerald Mile is the book. It's the... uh, Epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon. It's not only the story of that legendary ride, but also history of the river and the canyon. There's a lot about John Wesley Powell in this book. Very interesting. And uh, it's, a, it's a very good read. Kevin Fedarko, by the way, uh, his book appears on the Utah Public Radio book list. A while back, we uh, compiled a book list, and uh, you can find that at upr.org. The Emerald Mile appears on that book list. Uh, Kevin Fedarka will be in Salt Lake City on July 31st, and uh, that uh, begins at 7 o'clock at the King's English Bookshop, uh, jointly sponsored by the King's English and Wallace Stegner Center. Kevin Fedarka will read and sign from this book, so an opportunity to interact with the author on July 31st in Salt Lake City. Uh, so, Kevin Fedarko, um, what were the biggest obstacles? Was it that this very dangerous stretch of the river called the Crystal that the, these three and this this small wooden dory had to navigate? Well, I mean, that's a good question, Tom. I I, I think Crystal Rapid uh, at mile 98 was certainly one of the most formidable obstacles that um, the Emerald Mile had to confront. Uh, during the speed run, there were a couple of other rapids that were uh, that are always challenging and that um, probably uh, were exacerbated, uh, whose power was exacerbated by the flood. Um, the rapid that everybody who uh, speaks of is is a, is a rapid called Lava Lava Falls, which is at mile 178, and um, that was another big challenge. But you know, I'd have to say in answer to your question that um, probably the biggest challenge they confronted. And this, I think, the fact that they were able to do so successfully is kind of a testament to um, the skill and the knowledge that they kind of that they had acquired um, during the um, the years that they had spent uh, working in the canyon as river guides. But keep in mind that these are three men who are um, they're undertaking a speed run down a 277 mile uh, river um, under the light of a full moon. Uh, at the bottom of the Grand Canyon uh, over the course of one full day and two nights. And that's the interesting thing. The calculus that they performed before they um, staged their launch on the night of June 25th told them that if they wanted to have any chance of confronting and hopefully surmounting the worst stretch of rapids, they wanted to be able to do that during the daylight. And that meant that they would have to launch in the middle of the night, row through the following day, and then undertake a second night journey through the canyon. And, um, you know, people who, um, who know the bottom of the canyon, river guides who have worked down there will tell you that um, it's one thing to handle the whitewater during the day, but almost no one gets out on the river at night. Um, even by the light of a full moon, at the bottom of the canyon that's more than a mile deep, there are very long, significant stretches of river uh, that are cast in complete darkness. And it was their ability to rely on a set of, um, a set of sensory tools um, that extended beyond eyesight that I think really enabled them to, to, p- to pull that off successfully. Um, if, you, if you row a boat, particularly a wooden boat, 
there's an awful lot of information that the river transmits to you through the blades and the oars, um, through the, the hull of the boat itself. Um, you can, uh, your ears can tell you an awful lot. Um, and then there's a, there's, a, there's a set of instincts that come into play after you have spent um, 10 or 15 years on the river where you, you, kind, of, you kind of just um, allow your mind and your body to sort of merge with the flow of the river. And um, that may sound a little bit goofy, but um, if you are rowing through pitch blackness um, and you can't see a thing, uh, that actually comes into play in a very significant way. And so I think this was one of the biggest obstacles they confronted and um, uh, is one of the things that renders the achievement that they pulled off so impressive. We do have an email. By the way, you can email us uh, with uh, your question or comment on River Running or this particular book. Kevin Fedarko, The Emerald Mile, uh, is the author in the book. Uh, this is from Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. Uh, I should say you can email us, as Steve did, at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You can uh, join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. Here's uh, Steve's comment. Um, my layman's impression was that rising river water overflows rocks and river bottoms that create rapids and thus calms down white water and makes it easier to traverse. Evidently, this is not the case, or at least not so in the conditions your guest is describing, which seem to dis- uh, demonstrate the opposite dynamic. Instead of calming the rapids down, the rising water is intensifying them and making them even more fierce than ever. Was I wrong about white water and rising water levels, or was the 1983 snowmelt runoff into the Colorado a special case? Yeah, what a what a great point Steve raises, um, and he is absolutely right. The um, you know in in many cases, as the river uh, as the river level rose to ninety three thousand cubic feet per second in late June of eighty three, many of the rapids there are about one hundred and sixty three one hundred and sixty named rapids at the bottom of the canyon, and many of those rapids simply washed out. Um, they were transformed from um, rock-studded um, um, pockets of, of white water and chaos into um, shoots of very, very fast-moving water. Uh, but I, at, a, at, a, at a small but very significant um, set of choke points along the river, uh, the opposite set of dynamics obtained. Under the right conditions, um, and some of this has to do with the constriction uh, that is created uh, as, a, as the walls of the, of the canyon narrow at the top of a rapid. Uh, under the right conditions, certain pockets of white water, instead of calming down, getting washed out, or disappearing altogether, um, become um, far more violent. And this is what happened at Crystal. Uh, to a lesser extent, it's what happened at Lava Falls. And... Um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the explosion wave at Crystal was 30 feet high from trough to crest. Um, so, so this was another thing that, this, that the, the crew of the Emerald Mile had to deal with. It was a, a changing set of conditions that rendered the river that they had come to know during the 15 to 20 years that they had been working on the river prior to 1983 um, completely unknowable. In some ways, this was a whole new river that they confronted in which they were trying to understand and unlock in their minds um, at night. And, um, uh, and the other thing I should mention very quickly is that the speed of the water increased very, very dramatically. And so in, even in cases where the rapids were washing out, 
the calculus that you had to perform in order to time your moves correctly uh, was fundamentally changed. Um, it was necessary to anticipate um, making moves far upstream and far in advance of what you would normally do. Um, and so the, um, the calibrations and the, um, the sort of internal map that river guides carry inside of their heads about how they move through the river, move from pockets of safety um, one to another, avoid eddies, keep in the main wave train, et cetera, um, these calculations were um, entirely rewritten by virtue of the speed of the river. We just have a couple of minutes left, uh, so d very briefly on this, but um, I'm wondering, and you write extensively about John Wesley Powell, 1869, and uh, you'll have to go to the book to, to read that very, very fascinating, vivid description of John Wesley Powell, the uh, one-armed, uh, very slight fellow. In fact, there, there are some comparisons that could be made, I guess, between him and, and Kenton Grua. 17 major canyons, 500 separate rapids that his expedition had to... Uh, had to traverse. This was totally unknown. And I wonder if people like Kenton Grua and every river runner at some point, they must have John Wesley Powell in, in their minds. Oh, Tom, you're absolutely right. I mean, not only do they carry John Wesley Powell in their minds, but they also carry him in their ammo cans. Um, every river guide uh, has a, um, a, uh, a little metal box, um, an ammo can, that you can, the sort of thing, thing that you can purchase in any army surplus store around the country. And these are the boxes that are used to carry one's personal effects on the river, largely because they are uh, waterproof and almost completely indestructible and can be lashed to the decks of a boat. And uh, it's hard to find a guide who is not carrying um, the story of John Wesley Powell inside his ammo can or her ammo can. I should say some of the finest guides on the river are women. Um, and um, not only do the river guides... Um, read and absorb and steep themselves in the story of John Wesley Powell, but they also take those books out at night and read them to their passengers. And I think the reason that Powell um, continues to uh, occupy such a significant stature, despite the fact that he was only about five and a half feet tall in the minds of uh, people who live and work at the bottom of the canyon, is that he really cut the line. Um, and by that I mean, not only was he the first person ever to navigate um, through the, the set of 500 rapids that runs from um, uh, Green River, uh, Utah, or Green River, Wyoming, where he started out, um, all the way to the Virgin River just above Las Vegas. Not only was he the first person to navigate those rapids physically, but he also sort of cut the narrative in a way. And we'll have Every to, uh, single river story starts with John Wesley Powell. We'll have to end it there. We're out of time, unfortunately, but uh, it maybe gives the people appetite to read the book. Uh, very fascinating tales and some history there, not only this adventure story. The Emerald Mile is the book. Kevin Fedarko is the author. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And uh, there's an event at the King's English Bookshop. That's on July 31st, 7 p.m., your chance to interact with Kevin Fedarko. Coming up, uh, we have Utah StoryCorps. You can hear that tomorrow as well, during All Things Considered. For uh, producer uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. My name is Martha Hamm. I'm 60 years old, and I'm sitting with Michelle Thomas, a downwinder. My name is Michelle Thomas. 
I'm 61 years old. Michelle, what's a downwinder? A downwinder is an individual who was either born or in their mother's womb or was outside of the womb in 1951 through 62. How they got the name downwinder is during the Cold War, the American government was all worked up over the possibility of Khrushchev having atomic bombs. To counter that, the government identified a site where they would detonate very sizable above-ground nuclear bombs. But they did this at the Nevada test site, which is just a little over 100 miles from St. George. They told the people of this area in uh, parts of Nevada, Bunkerville, Mesquite, St. George, of course. Later, during President Clinton's era, some of these documents were declassified, and they had St. George circled on these maps of yesteryear and called it Fallout City, knowing that this would get heavily radiated, although, uh, quite honestly, it went all across the United States and, and beyond. It was not long after these tests that people in my town began to notice an alarming number of medical issues that had never surfaced, things ranging from cluster births. The mother would give birth to like a cluster of grapes, a gelatous matter. People were perplexed. Sometimes they lived long enough to get a diagnosis, and sometimes they just came in from outside and died. This was dirty. It had all manner of carcinogenic radioisotopes. My mother never really believed them that there was no harm. They kept saying, you're a part of history. In fact, go up on the hills, on the bluffs, watch them go off. And many people did. And then their hair would fall out the next day. My mother lost a sister, and she died of cancer. And then her very best friend. She was out in her garden one day when a fallout cloud came over. She passed away of stomach cancer. When that happened, my mom became so enraged. My mother is the first activist I ever knew. She formed the group called Downwinders. My mother had them assemble, oh, in the late 70s, 76. I'm trying to think when she was on the People magazine cover. And they did a big story on mom. It was so hard to be a downwinder and to live with someone who was fighting it and was so enraged that her government had lied. They were not alive to see me diagnosed with salivary gland cancer or breast cancer, which pleased me enormously. It's hard to be a downwinder and suffer the medical issues that come with it and fight for the ones that are as sick and debilitated as I am but don't have a voice. But I'm too sad and I'm too mad not to tell the story. My mom used to say, because I'd say, Mom, people are talking in town. They think you're being unfaithful to America. And she said, I'm faithful to you. I love her. I'm proud of her, but I never got to tell her that I was proud of her when she was alive. When I teach little children, their eyes are big and wide. And I said, the reason you need to know this story is you must not let it happen again. 
These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving southwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. Thank you.